Welcome to the latest podcast from Greyfriars Church in Reading. Our vision is to see Reading transformed by the love and power of Jesus. You can find out more on our website, greyfriars.org.uk. Enjoy. Here we are in the book of Acts. It is the final, final one in our series, Rediscovering the Way. And we've observed the early community of believers anchoring themselves in mission week one and prayer week two and focusing on God's kingdom in week three. These anchors led to growth, as we saw in week four, and the spirit led and enabled them to be a community shaped and empowered in week five to advocate for people formerly considered outside of the church. And last week, week six at Pentecost, we remember how it all started with the interruption of the spirit filling, leading and empowering them to walk in the way of Jesus. It leads us to this, our final week. Today we're going to follow the start of this community from the beginning of Acts through to our reading from chapter 4 today. And this is where we see a generous countercultural community. So, generous community. I'm guessing that when you hear those words, you probably are going to think money. And you might panic. But don't worry, it's not all going to be about money. It's actually a lot harder than that. Money is in here and the book of Acts reminds us not to forget about it. But it also reminds us who Jesus calls us to be. The body of Christ here on earth, living, breathing, giving, noticing, caring and utterly revolutionising our status quo. It is not easy. Honestly, it has been hard studying and writing this. Maybe you'll be fine though. First, let's start with some context. So in chapter one, it's kind of the picture frame for the whole book, which was written by Luke. The picture frame is Jesus. His 40, his 40, seriously, every time I've recorded this, I've tried to say this, his 40 post-resurrection days aren't exactly recounted in detail, but we do know that Jesus's time was spent with his community, with his friends and then he commissions them. And then he's ascending into heaven and the disciples return to the political and religious hotbed, the city of Jerusalem. In response to Jesus's commission, the community of believers commit and intentionally put themselves in a place of accountability to each other, a commitment to this mission in chapter one, verse 14. They make themselves accountable. They include they include the women, which was a status quo buster at the time, and sometimes still is these days. And then they appoint a replacement for Judas. In Acts 2, we then see the incredible events of Pentecost. Where were they? All together in one place. What were they doing? Dunno. Suddenly though, the spirit interrupts them, First, filling the building, which I'd missed every other time I've read this until I heard Justin Welby say it on Lecture 365 last week. And then the spirit spreads like wildfire through the people, moving this gathered community to speak. What happens when they speak? Well, normal life is interrupted. The city of Jerusalem is disrupted. And remember that word when we see where Peter and John end up in chapter 4. Peter responds to the curiosity of the crowd, telling the Jesus story and highlighting the threads in Jewish cultural heritage which resonate in Joel's prophecy of the outpouring of the Spirit and the echoes of Jesus in the Psalms. 
he finishes with this. And I found the message version really helpful if we're trying to understand why it was so explosive to the power holders of the time. Peter says, change your life, turn to God, be baptised, receive the gift of the Spirit. The promise is targeted to you and your children, but also to all who are far away, whoever in fact the Master our God invites. So get out while you can. Get out of this sick and stupid culture. About 3,000 people do just that. They turn their lives upside down that day, choosing to heed the apostles' teaching, to live life together, to eat together, to pray together. They upturn their life rhythms into something else entirely. It's a community founded not on the rules of an empire regime that they lived within, and the Roman Empire's goal was to basically shape the world in its image, which is pretty much the goal of any kind of thing like that. But instead, they choose to live as a community which undermines the slaveholding, ownership-based hierarchical structure of that empire by giving up what was rightfully theirs, pouring it freely into the needs of those around them. But more of that later. So back to chapter two, verses 43 to 47. These verses tell us just how much these 3000 people changed their lives. They held everything in common. They sold whatever they owned. They pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. They followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple. And then they followed that with joy-filled meals in the home. They healed people, as we see in chapter three. And they spoke the truth about Jesus's resurrection and how it turned the universe right side up. And people noticed, funnily enough, most people in general liked what they saw, which is Eugene Peterson's casual way of saying this is just how good the good news was. But this good news didn't sound good to the people in power. So now to chapter three. Peter and John are en route to the temple, to a prayer meeting actually, and just before they get there at the beautiful gate which leads into the temple, there's a chap who's probably sat there for about three decades because it says he was over 40. He asks them for money. Peter and John don't have any. Why? Because they're living this unfettered truth of actual good news. So what happens when this chap, full of all his need, encounters followers of the way? His life is transformed because Peter shares the generous good news and he's healed. It's dynamite. Most of Jerusalem would have known who this guy was because pretty much everyone in Jerusalem went to the temple, right through the beautiful gate past where this guy was begging every day. And seeing him jumping and leaping and praising God and hugging Peter and John would have been utterly epic. I really love and am pretty unsettled by the fact that this only happens because Peter and John were open to the interruption of the spirit. After all, they'd been on their way to a prayer meeting. They were open to the Spirit disrupting their plans. That makes me, with my colour-coded Excel spreadsheets and sort of two or three Gmail diaries, pretty uncomfortable. You? Anyway, Peter uses the opportunity of a gathered crowd to again preach the good news. He names hard truths. 
hence the jail overnighter. Peter spells out Jesus's murder and then proclaims that Jesus's resurrection fulfills prophecies of old. This was the Messiah who saves. From the point of view of the religious leaders, Peter proclaims a good news which dismantles the religious and political structures of the day. As Peter says when questioned by them later on in chapter 4, the stone that the religious leaders or the builders rejected is now the cornerstone. The structures which lauded power over Jesus and the poor and the Gentiles suddenly find themselves powerless. Because only Jesus has true power. Jesus broke the power of death and death for power holders and empire is used to control and to enforce compliance. And we see it through the ages. We see it in the crusades and the slave trade. We see it in the knee of a power holder oppressing the breath of life out of George Floyd on May the 25th, 2020. Once the final threat of death is undone, power holders no longer hold the power of fear. It crumbles and is replaced by the beautiful name of Jesus, who is the way, the truth and the life. Perhaps the most beautiful thing in this story of Acts is that standing right next to this beautiful gate, there was a living, breathing, beautiful person, an example of God's beautiful freedom and the good news of Jesus's beautiful resurrection power, living proof of life in its fullness. Peter preached his sermon of holy words, words of truth. Theologian Willie James Jennings writes in his commentary in the book of Acts, holy words bring consequences. They are tied to the concrete liberating actions of God for broken people. Holy words bring the speakers into direct confrontation with those in power. Jesus not only spoke such words, but he was such a word. I guess that's why Peter and John are arrested by the religious leaders, including the priest Annas, remember his name, at the start of chapter 4. <sighs> right, we've landed in chapter 4 at last. I've given all this backstory because I think it's really important that we don't forget the cultural context of the early church. We mustn't romanticise what they lived through, the sacrifices that they made to live the way that they did. It's important that we don't miss the joy and the freedom that they experienced in choosing to live this counter-cultural way, the way of the way, Jesus. The religious leaders could not believe that these unschooled, uneducated blokes could speak and interpret the scriptures so clearly, and they noted that these people had been with Jesus. Much as they might have wanted to discount the teachings of Peter and John's rabbi, or teacher, Jesus, they acknowledged that they can't, since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, so there was nothing they could see. Chapter 4, verse 14. So what do they do? They revert to their preferred modus operandi of threats. You're not allowed to disrupt the city by proclaiming the alternative way. Remember, these people were called followers of the way. If you do, we'll lock you up, beat you up, kill you, etc, 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 blah, blah, blah. The effect? Nothing. Peter and John respond with, Hmm, listening to you guys or listening to the almighty God, what do you think we're going to do? Of course, we can't help but proclaim this good news. 
Peter and John are released, returning to the community of believers. And what's the first thing that they do? Pray. For what? If it was me, it would have been protection. Not them. No. They pray for continued courage to keep proclaiming the truth, inviting more and more people to join the countercultural way of seeing the world through the lens of Jesus. Jesus, the way to life. Jesus, the truth to speak out. Jesus, the life which overcame the power of death. And then what? While they were praying, the place they were meeting trembled and shook. They were all filled with the Spirit and continued to speak God's word with, word with fearless confidence. Chapter 4, verse 31. In the face of threat and imprisonment, this community shows us a different way to live. It is the way of togetherness. All for one, Jesus, and one for all. One heart, one mind. How? Well, they'd seen another way. They'd seen death's power broken and realised the truths about this new way of living, free from the divisions that money-based systems impose. Jesus had proclaimed this different way countless times. We see it in their message version in Mark chapter 10. Do you have any idea how difficult it is for people who have it all to enter God's kingdom? asked Jesus. The disciples couldn't believe what they were hearing, but Jesus kept on. You can't imagine how difficult. I'd say it's easier for a camel to go through the needle's eye than for the rich to get into heaven. That got their attention. Then who has any chance at all, they ask. Jesus was blunt. No chance at all if you think you can pull it off by yourself. Every chance in the world if you let God do it. And again, even more starkly, in Matthew 6 verse 24, when he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you cannot worship both God and money. The community we see here refuse to be held ransom by a money culture. Money cultures create barriers and distance between the haves and the have-nots. Annas, former high priest and father-in-law to Caiaphas, current high priest at the time, was sustaining that divide, even in the temple, which is exactly why Jesus held the money changers' tables over in Matthew 21. Money changers, you may know, exchanged the currency of the time for Tyrian shekels, which was a coinage used by the Phoenician civilization, which is an entire culture founded on trade. They used this as payment for temple tax. So any pilgrims heading into the temple for Passover had to pay it. Incidentally, you might like to know, one of these coins was discovered just in March this year in Jerusalem's Holy City. Feel free to Google it. Anyway. It's also likely that these were the very kinds of coins that Judas was paid with. The very chap who just months earlier had exchanged the invaluable freedom of Jesus for the value of money and the mistaken hope of seeing a money-sponsored uprising. The community we see here is moved by the Spirit. The spirit who dismantles the divide between the haves and the have-nots, the insiders and the outsiders, the Jews and the Gentiles. Hierarchies are undone by the interruption and disruption of God's spirit. Theologian and historian Justo Gonzalez describes the Book of Acts as a call for Christians to be open to the action, and I would say interruption, of the spirit, leading them to confront values and practices in society. 
This community is living counterculturally, finding more in common by choosing to lose what made them different in the eyes of the pervading money culture. I find myself needing to ask this question. Have my choices, behaviours and lifestyle fallen out of alignment with Jesus's countercultural message of good news? Yes. You? Where have I opted out of the generous invitation from Christ Jesus to live free from the never-ending rat race of consumerism? Where have I chosen to keep things, the stuff I think of as mine, instead of holding all I have at the feet of Jesus, waiting to be disrupted and led by the Spirit to respond to someone else's need? Where have I busied myself so much that I'm no longer open to the interruption of the Spirit that I profess to follow and be filled with? Do you know what scares me most? The passage immediately after our reading today is about Ananias and Sapphira. I'll not spoil it for you if you haven't read it, but I challenge you to do it when you get home, or in a minute if you are already home. But what I will say to myself, as much as to anyone else, is this. Don't pretend that you've given everything to God if you haven't. Be honest about what you've given to God. Be honest about what you've held back. In the West, most of us are like camels attempting to get through the eye of a needle. The more we have, the harder it is to share and give away. I absolutely positively do not have this sussed. I'm not sure what I'm going to do when I go to bed tonight, seeing stuff around me that I quite honestly just don't need. But I do know that I have to be serious about the honest conversations I need to have with myself, with Jesus and with the community I find myself in. The title of the series that we've been doing is Rediscovering the Way, but if I'm completely honest, I feel like I'm only just discovering the, the way right now. All I can do is draw on the prayers of the saints from Acts 4. So I'm going to say a prayer for myself and you are welcome to join me if you are willing to be interrupted, disrupted, filled and led and moved by the Spirit. Holy Spirit, breathe your life. You are the breath of life. You are high over all things. You created the universe and the earth and the sea and the sky and everything in them. Empower us as your servants to speak your words of truth and freedom, both in action and in word. May our communities be noticed because of the absence of selfishness and the presence of love. Please beckon my behaviours into alignment with Jesus' countercultural message of good news. Today, I choose to accept the generous invitation from Christ Jesus to live free from the pervading money culture of this world. I take this time to wait on you, willing to be disrupted and led by you as you guide me to respond to someone else's need. Thank you, Jesus. I pray this by your grace and by your generous love.
Amen.